Welcome back to another episode of Into the Night Minute. Each week, Movies by Minute hosts examine the 1985 John Landis-directed comedy Into the Night, one minute of screen time per episode. You're here today with me, David Forsyth, and my co-host, Todd Lucas, from the as-yet-unreleased movies Movie by Minute podcast, Edge of Tomorrow Minute. We're here to discuss Minute 77 of Into the Night, which opens on Diana playing a life-sized game of Frogger, and ends with Lawrence Kasdan serving some serious face. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. I like that, Frogger. Okay. Well, yeah. it kind of goes with what I was wanting, thinking about there, because uh, as you noted, she is pretty nimble on those stacked heels. That's true. And uh, that just reminds me, um, and you know, this is later in, in life, but not much, where she uh, takes her turn as Catwoman in the second Batman movie. Yeah. The second, uh, the second Tim, Tim Burton, Burton one. Yeah. yeah. yeah right. And, uh, Apparently, she was uh, such a quick study and a hard worker on that. By the time they had her in the full cat suit for the first time, she uh, she shows off by bull whipping the heads off a bunch of mannequins and then <laughs> jump roping away. Nice. The, as legend go, has it, uh, she did that all in one take. Wow. Yeah, with no cuts or anything. So that, I mean, they did actually do cut the camera, but that was all done. It was her hitting them in the targets and... It was very impressive when I found out about that. And uh, I do listen to Bat Minute. Shout out to another Movie by Minute podcast. You know, their Facebook group is full of great little tidbits and it's very active over there. Uh, and there was um, something I'd seen on there and I don't remember the source, but it was something sort of along the lines that Michelle Pfeiffer found her old bullwhip and pulled it out and was able to still do some pretty impressive tricks with it. So it was, it was pretty neat. So um, she, uh, yeah, apparently is a quick study. So. And uh, I'd actually heard a bit from uh, the the stunt coordinator she worked with on that one. Uh, she was, you know, give, he was giving an interview way after the fact, but uh, he was always uh, very impressed with how much she worked because you know everyone's like, oh, she na- a natural? And so she, no, she wasn't a natural. She just worked really hard. Right. She's so, a naturally hard worker. Right. right. That's yeah. kind of you know that's a lot more respectable <laughs> if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, when we do see her cross the street, it's not a very busy street at that moment. Although it is a, f- a pretty big four lane highway. We see her crossing the street going to Bud's place, and we get to see the address um, is 21942. So I did a little digging on that, and it turns out that's 21942 Pacific Coast Highway in Malibu, um, which is a, uh, you know, a, a very rich stretch uh, of, of uh, real estate there. So kind of dug into that one a little bit, and here's my real estate sleuthing skills at work. So this house sold in 1998 for about $2.9 million. Um, then it was on and off the market a lot since 2005 with varying prices listed as low as 14.9 million in 2005. Wow. And as high as 32 million in 2008. What do you think it's worth in this condition that we're seeing here with everything (laughs) trashed? (laughs) Uh, well, considering in 10 years, it would sell for about two, almost 3 million. It's probably, we'll call it 1.5 at that point. All right. There we go. It's not a very huge, not a very huge house. It was built in 1955, about 1,800 square feet, which is, you know, it's big, but not, not huge. It's not like mansion sized. The big benefit here is the 80 feet of frontage on the private uh, beach known as Carbon Beach or Billionaire Beach in Malibu. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, yeah. b- back then it was maybe known as Millionaire Beach, but, you know, things have inflated a little bit. So. Certainly. Yeah. Uh, but it's just, it's a four bed, five bath, uh, open floor plan house. Um and was at one known, one point known as the Polaroid Beach House. 
And I thought, wow, that's interesting. Maybe somebody from the Polaroid Corporation back then built it or something like that. And when you look into that a little further, it's, it turns out, no, uh, that was from the mid-2000s when the house was rented to the Polaroid Corporation. And they essentially just threw celebrity and product placement-laden beach parties there. Um, <laughs> so Fascinating. Yes, apparently we cared about that thing, sort of thing at one point. <laughs> and we've all replaced it with Instagram now, I guess, right? We don't have to watch e-television to find out where Paris Hilton was. We just... You know, she tells see, us live. You know, <laughs> well, I don't think anyone cares where she is right now. Well, but, no, but yeah. anybody who's anybody will tell you where they are live, or anybody who's nobody. So, yeah. <laughs> but uh, eventually, the city of Malibu cracked down on that sort of thing and required like registration for any parties of over a hundred people. There could be no more than four interested parties in in a in a home. Like, so you couldn't go in on a forty million dollar home uh, at, with a corporation in order to to turn it into a uh, a party house you you'd essentially have to have uh people own it and it could be no more than four so wow what a bunch of wet blankets yeah tell me about it but i understand i mean we we met the neighbors earlier and they were a stodgier older couple who uh wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't stop a gang of murderers from drowning a beauty queen apparently apparently but, not but yeah. Uh, yeah they totally want to call the cops on it they, they thought about it for sure so and my last bit of information about this house is that it was rumored to be owned by Dean Martin at one point. So I don't know if that's true or not, but I saw it in more than one place on the internet. So it's maybe true. That's probably the most interesting bit there. That's yeah. kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Not that I have anything to, where to go with that, but still. Yeah. But if you, um, if you, if you look at stuff on Google Maps, you'll see the, the facade is entirely changed. Like it's been painted white. It doesn't have that brick anymore. But the um, address numbers look like they're, probably the same numbers and then they're in the same place. So you can't believe that $14 million and they're too cheap to change that numbering on there. Well, they're pretty swanky numbers. I would say so. <laughs> I got numbers like that on my house and it's not quite the same sort of place. <laughs> they're vintage numbers. No. So. Okay. Well, that may be a big difference, but it's kind of what Lowe's has on stock <laughs> right now. So <laughs> exactly. Faux vintage at Lowe's though. Come on. It's plastic. So yeah, after Diana crosses, crosses the street, we see her uh, meet a cop and get escorted by the elbow into the building. Monsieur Millville and Ed both have um, a face reaction shot. And it, it's kind of curious. You know, they're both like, what's going on? But Ed seems to have a tiny bit of relief at the end, I think, of his. He, he cares enough that he's he's glad that at least one of them has gotten away from this guy. But he's also... He's also kind of a, it seems like he might be enjoying Melville's discomfort right there. Cause <laughs> that, that be moment good. right there is the point where he could get betrayed. You know, he may have read the situation wrong. Maybe she doesn't give a crap. You know, she might just go in there and get some cops and finish him off. Right. Right. And you know, Ed doesn't care either way, honestly, you know, he's, yeah. he's, he's happy to see her inside and right. potentially safe in the hands of some, some of Malibu's finest, right? Yeah, so. I, I get the feeling that it, it's been several of these minutes since he's been, you know, happy to have just done something other than what he's been doing. And, you know, if he died right now, yeah, fine. <laughs> yeah. I don't really know what Melville thought the plan was going to be if he thought she was going to breeze in and out like the wind or if, uh, if uh, you know, sneak around back like a ninja or something. But, yeah, I mean, this seems to really have been her only place to sort of smooth talk her way in. Just walk in and, and rely on the fact that there should be someone inside that knows her. Yeah, right, hopefully. But uh, inside we see the aftermath of the Savox raid on Bud's living room, and um, it's thoroughly trashed in the front half. 
Uh, the back half is, is mostly untouched. There's like a china cabinet with many plates still standing up, decorative plates standing up on end there, and like hardly a ruffled uh, napkin on the dining room table, the glass dining room table. But the front half is like all the everything's torn up. And yes, Christy just couldn't stand to have everything getting broken. And when she made her run for it, she distracted everyone from their mayhem, I guess. Yeah, that's probably true. And, you know, we don't see the the end of that. We just see Christy being mm, probably murdered in, in the ocean. Um, and we don't see Savak, the Savak go back and, and try and, um, you know, toss the rest of the house. So they, they probably split too sweet, as Monsieur Melville would say. Uh, right. Yeah, and that that's my take on it. I, I'm pretty sure that the neighbors did call the cops, and that's why they're here. I'm sure they yeah. came in and found the place like this, and Bud's still wrapped up in, and I guess that was phone cord they tied him up in. Yeah. Yeah, that's probably true. It It's not 100% clear that Bud or the cops know the fate of Christy yet at this point, right? Right. Um, it, it seems like maybe, well, I, I'm guessing just because I, I figured the old couple called the cops in and, you know, they would have been called in for the murder because that's what they saw. But then when they tracked that back, they found Bud here and they may be playing at KG. They may not have informed Bud because he really doesn't seem to know yet. You'd think he'd be a little more upset because he, he's just trying to tell Christine that she's not here. Right. He, he doesn't seem to be saying anything extra with his eyes or anything right. like that. And you don't know why he would you know, lie to her otherwise, because, you know, he knows her, but only tolerates her normally, it seems like. Right. He certainly seems to to be not uh, under her spell, as it were. So, yeah. Well, let's let's talk about our uh, some of our um, cameos we have here. Um, the, the sheriff uh, is not necessarily a cameo. He's just an actor who's doing an acting bit here. His name is Reed Smith. Uh, he's a Burbank native, did a lot of TV acting. He was on some great shows. Uh, Riptide, Misfits of Science, Airwolf, Remington Steel, Mork and Mindy, Bonanza, Six Million Dollar Man. He seemed awful familiar. I've probably seen all those episodes. <laughs> probably. <laughs> he was on an episode of Columbo. Uh, and was featured on both Dynasty and The Colbys. <laughs> yeah, uh, which I think were related, right? I believe so. Yeah, I don't know. Um, one was the Colby's was a spinoff of some other evening soap opera. I don't remember which one, but let's say Dynasty, just because uh, then it's then then I sound smarter. And uh, he hadn't done much since the mid '90s and uh, died in 2001. I'm not sure of what circumstances, but uh, he does have a IMDb credit from 2004. So, okay, that's creepy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> The detective who is still wearing his jacket, um, who speaks first, and um, I think he's billed as Detective Number One, right? Right. He's his name is Rusty Lane, R U S D I, which I'm going to assume is just like a Californication of Rusty, and not some sort of ethnic name that I'm mispronouncing. He only has a few IMDb credits. Um, he also died uh, in 1997, uh, but was uh, mostly a TV actor. Uh, had been in Laverne and Shirley as Santa Claus. As Santa Claus, right? Uh, in Taxi and in Hill Street Blues. So some on some good shows, but only like one or two episodes at, at most. So well, He had a, a named part in, in uh, The Omen 2. The best of The Omen series? I don't know. I right? don't know. It had a subtitle. I've forgotten what it was. So sure. Whatever the that omening. tells you. Omen 2, The Omening. Let's no. see. The, well, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Something like that. No, it was Damien, no, I believe it was. It was named yeah, after yeah. whatever the main kid was. Yeah. 
I've seen multiple Omen movies. I couldn't tell you if Omen 2 was one of them or not, but uh, <laughs> I definitely have seen more, 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 than, more than one. So the second detective, who we'll just mention briefly here because uh, we'll talk more at length about him uh, in the next minute because he's got a little bit more to, to say and do uh, there, is um, our, our real cameo here. It's, this is Lawrence Kasdan, um, the director of uh, Body Heat, Big Chill, Silverado, in that order. I think those were his first three directorial movies. Has done a lot of writing and producing as well. And uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if he's our, our Goldblum connection, but The Big Chill was sort of what gained Goldblum enough attention to, to be considered in this role. Um, so it's uh, it's entirely possible that that's, that's sort of how his name got floated here. But uh, Or maybe it's just a coincidence. Who knows? I think it's just a coincidence. I mean, yeah. Kasdan is one of... Uh one of the buddies of the director here and, and they're all kind of moving the same circles. So that's true. There are 20 some uh, cameos in here. So if they all were a coincidence in casting something, then, you know, that would be a lot of uh, casting coincidence. Anyway. Coincidence. That's not good. I don't like it. No, no, no. We're, 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 we've, we've nailed him down as, as our golden goose and we're probably going to hold him off till next episode. What else yeah. do we have to say about uh, minute 77 here? Well, when Diana is brought in, uh, she's brought in by the sheriff and we sort of find out about her ruse because she told the sheriff she was there to pick up her coat and he relays that information to the rest of the room. Sir, this woman says she came to pick up a coat from Mrs. Herman. And, uh, you know, she she looks genuinely concerned when she first steps in and sees the chaos. uh, And her first question that she asks is, you know, what happened? Where's Christy? And, you know, Bud gets very defensive. When uh, someone asks him what happened to Mrs. Herman, we're not married. Um, he's like, "Hey, we weren't we weren't married." Yeah, he does defend that pretty vociferously. Yeah, but he does seem to soften a bit when he's uh, he reemphasizes to Diana that the Christie is not present. Right. Yeah. So she he says that she's not there. What happened? Where's Christie? She's not here. Okay, Diane. And her concern seems to sort of melt away a little bit. Like she she was immediately concerned for the safety of Christie. Finds out she's not there. And then that kind of melts away and she comes out of her flustered state and um, kind of gets back to her ruse, you know, where she's uh, spots the coat where the stone, the stones are stashed under the debris of the dining room or the, the coffee table. She sort of continues her charade there and she seems this moment seems like she's either acting very defensive and suspicious uh, what's going on? I, I just came here to pick up my coat. Or she's just doing some bad acting. There's a lot of, like, strange, like, what do I do with my hands? How do I make my face look? You know, she kind of goes through a couple different looks of, like, I'm concerned to I'm cool, you know, all within a second or two. And I think I'd like to give her the credit that that's good acting, if, you know, for the emotions that her character is going through. But it, it reads funny to me. I don't know. Yeah, the, the reading I was getting off of it was uh, more uh, you know, like she was trying to communicate with Bud subtly. I mean, we, we know that Bud is not exactly an angel. Uh, we learn some interesting things in the next minute about him and why the cops are giving him such a hard time. But uh, you, you think that she can she's trying to convey to him, hey, look, I need that coat and I need the cops to leave me alone. Because right. he, he does actually um, give her more oppor- opportunities. You know, he says, what coat? Really loud. Like he's trying to get them to, you know, forget about the coat because, you know, why would a coat be important right now? 
Yeah. In in the next minute, he'll be a little more demonstrative about getting her out of there. And I always just kind of read it as Bud being kind of a, a jerk, but uh, you're right. He may, yeah. they may have been a little nonverbal communication there between the two of them. You know, both of them seem to be um, no friend of the cops. Exactly. Uh, and, and I had read it that way the first time when I first watched it, but after, you know, looking through it several times in preparation for this, it dawned on me that uh, nobody acts like that in real life. You know, they're just constantly, you know, badgering about, you know, this detail. What the heck? Who cares about this detail? No, this detail. I don't care about this detail. You people need to deal with me right now. Yeah. Because you know, he wasn't really, he's really just trying to get them to leave him alone because he doesn't want them throwing him in jail because of his previous uh, history, his probation uh, for cocaine possession. Yeah. And yeah. who knows what he's got stashed around the house still, right? So. Exactly. Right. You know, because they didn't toss the whole place. And so the cops, if they don't search anything that hasn't been tossed, they won't find anything else he might be hiding. I may have initially really misread this scene then because I was under the impression that he was really just upset about the parrot who got shot. Um, so, Yeah, I think that might have been uh, the first <laughs> thing, but you notice they don't show any of the debris from the dead parrot, so you don't realize that now. And uh, I literally had forgotten about the dead parrot. I mean, when they first walked in, I'm like, crap, they just shot the parrot. But then by yeah. the time they come back, I'm like, I don't didn't remember there was a parrot until I watched through it again. So I I'm I'm afraid that's just, you know, one of those weird throwaway comic details. You know. You could have the way you were reading it, it could have been, you know, a useful thing that they could have carried through, but just didn't. And I wasn't really reading it that way. I was just trying to cover up for the fact that I may have missed the uh, nonverbal communications with <laughs> a little bit of comedy. So um and if you're a weirdo who uh jumps into a, a minute by minute podcast at minute seventy seven and you don't know what we're talking about with the bird uh, with the parrot. Go go back, I don't know, probably seven or eight minutes, maybe? No, um, less than five, I'm sure. Oh, okay. Yeah, to uh and, and you'll see the Savak when they when they break into Bud's uh house. It's it's John Landis playing this the the mute Savak, um, who solves all of his problems with his pistol, uh solves the parrot problem. So yeah. He apparently solved his uh his uh knocking himself in the face with a door problem with his pistol as well. But uh, yeah. yeah. A lot of problems that can be solved with a pistol, um, as far as he's concerned. So, yeah. And then, uh, the minute really ends on a shot of, uh, Larry Kazdan looking at Diana sort of suspiciously with his coat stylishly thrown over his finger clutched or over his shoulder clutched by one finger in, in the way you do in the eighties. Um, yeah, well, you know, as we'll talk about a little more later, uh, Kazdan actually started off his, uh, his career thinking he would be an actor. Mm. And uh, um, you can see what the results of his original training was in that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so there's all a good right. reason why he abandoned that for uh, writing and direction. Good to know. Yeah. Uh, all right. So do you have anything else uh, about Minute 77 that you'd like to to bring up? No, no. I think we're pretty much there. I mean, my big bet was uh, how Diane and Bud were kind of, uh, they were working together to get the coat out because... Bud doesn't have any reason to to believe there's anything important in that coat. And then when she shows, Diane shows up to get the coat, he's like, crap, that's probably full of drugs. Yeah. Oh, and that's yeah. the last thing he needs in there. He has no idea that it's something as important as these emeralds, but he knows that he needs Six to help her get them out now. Perfect. And it's, and it's self, enlightened, uh, self-enlightened, uh, uh, you know, self-preservation kind of thing. He knows he needs to help her because it's only going to help him in the long run. Yeah. No, that's a, I think that's a good take on that. Bud does show he's a jerk, so it's not a it's not a in other parts of the movie, so it's not a leap to read that from him. But I think that's I think that's a good in depth uh, look at 
it buds motivation there. I like that. So, all right. Well, I don't have anything else. So, um, we'll go ahead and wrap this up and, uh, we'll let you know that you can find into the night minute podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google play, or at the main site, nightminute.com or however you found this episode, just find the rest of them and the ones before that again, the same way, cause they're all going to be in the same spot. So, and they're handily numbered for you. So there you go. Um, you can connect with us and all of the other Into the Night Minute producers at The King Lives Listeners Limo on Facebook and on Twitter at Night Minute. So join us here next time on Into the Night Minute. Bye. Do we thank you or what? I'd say I fall in the or what category.